Welcome to the Shakespeare Underground, a podcast series exploring the works and life of William Shakespeare. The Shakespeare Underground is dedicated to exploring the fascinating and controversial arena of the Shakespeare authorship debate. In each episode, we look at why many people question the belief that William Shakespeare of Stratford-upon-Avon was the author of the plays and poems we call the Shakespeare canon. I'm Alan Armstrong, and this is Episode 6, Poet Ape, a Plagiarist Among the Playwrights. This is the second part of our interview with Dr. Sabrina Feldman about her book, The Apocryphal William Shakespeare. In the first half of the interview, which is found in Episode 4, Dr. Feldman discussed the Shakespeare Apocrypha, a group of plays and poems that were printed under William Shakespeare's name or initials, or attributed to him in some way by his contemporaries or near-contemporaries, but which have been excluded by scholars from the accepted works of Shakespeare known as the canon. We listened to excerpts from several of the apocryphal plays that demonstrated the distinctive and crowd-pleasing qualities of these works, qualities that made them very popular in the 16th and 17th centuries. The episode ended with Dr. Feldman's conclusion that the main author of the apocryphal plays is William Shakespeare of Stratford. In this episode, we continue our interview with Dr. Feldman and learn about an intriguing group of plays and poems written by Shakespeare's contemporaries that appear to satirize a real person in their theatrical community, someone notorious as a social climber and a plagiarizer. We'll find out if this unnamed target of their satire can be linked to the Apocrypha, which, as we discovered, contain many plagiarized passages, and also if it's possible to identify him. Let's listen now to the second half of our interview with Dr. Feldman for some answers to these important questions. Sabrina, let's focus now on a topic that you cover extensively in your book. I'm talking about the many writings by contemporaries of Shakespeare, the Stratford man, that appear to allude to him, and usually in a highly satirical way. One of the most important of these writers was Robert Greene. What can you tell us about him? Yeah, he was born six years before William Shakespeare. He was born in 1558, and he attended Cambridge University. He's often described as the first man in England to have made a living from his pen. So he was a professional writer, maybe England's first professional writer. And making a living is a little exaggerated, perhaps. He barely survived. He was able to scratch out enough to live for a while, but he eventually uh, died of poverty and apparently alcoholism. He was a very heavy drinker. Uh, he got a master's degree in 1583, and he went to London. He had this fascinating, very, very colorful life. He abandoned his wife to live with a prostitute who happened to be the sister to this thief named Cutting Doll. So Green is, is quite exciting in his own right. But as far as Shakespeare goes, Green is famous because, most famous, because in 1592 he wrote a, a diatribe against a man he called Shakespeare that traditional scholars believe was William Shakespeare. But attacking this man, Shakespeare, is seen as the first literary allusion to William Shakespeare of the time. Anyway, Green became a professional playwright. He was a very, very popular writer in the late 1580s and early 1590s. Um, and he was an associate of Christopher Marlowe, Thomas Nash, George Peel. So he was very central to the literary scene of the time. Okay, let's listen to part of this famous attack by Green on someone he calls Shakespeare. One of our actors recorded the most quoted portion of this diatribe 
which is found in a letter to Green's fellow dramatist that was published shortly after his death in a slim collection of writings with the title Green's Groatsworth of Wit, Bought with a Million of Repentance. There's a minor authorship controversy over this pamphlet, actually, but we'll save that for another podcast episode. Let's listen to this famous passage by Robert Greene. Base-minded men, all three of you, if by my misery you be not warned, for unto none of you, like me, sought those birds to cleave, those puppets, I mean, that speak from our mouths, those antics garnished in our colors. Is it not strange that I, to whom they all have been beholding, is it not like that you, to whom they all have been beholding, shall, were ye in the case that I am now, be both at once of them forsaken? Yes, trust them not, for there is an upstart crow, beautified with our feathers, that with his tiger's heart wrapped in a player's hide, supposes he is well able to bombast out a blank verse as the best of you, and being an absolute Johannes factotum, is in his own conceit the only shake scene in a country. Do you think this passage is an attack on William Shakespeare? I do. Let, let me first give the two most common interpretations, one from the Stratfordian side, one from the authorship skeptics, and then I'll, I'll tell you what I think myself. So, uh, traditional scholars identify this man, uh, Shakespeare, that Green is attacking with William Shakespeare, and they point to the pun on the name, you know, Shakespeare. Shakespeare sounds similar, and as well to Green's mimicry of this phrase, "tiger's heart wrapped in a woman's hide," and that's interesting because it's found in both the Bad Quarto and the canonical text in Henry the Sixth, Part Three. So, together, traditional scholars would say, well, Green was accusing William Shakespeare of being what seems to be this incompetent plagiaristic writer in 1592 because he was jealous of this Strasford actor because William Shakespeare was a better writer than him even though he was only grammar school educated. And authorship skeptics have had a huge problem with that interpretation because the Bard was this magnificent writer and he may not have had a university education, but the idea that Green was so jealous of him that he was snipping at him for being such a crude, awful, tiger-hearted man, it just doesn't make a lot of sense. So struggling with this passage, the Authorship skeptics have pointed out that it's not entirely clear Green was responsible for the full text. So another man, a writer and publisher named Henry Chettle, took Green's writings and polished them up for printing and and came out with this passage in Green's Groats Worth of Wit in 1592. And some people think that Chettle might have had more than a hand in just editing it, that perhaps he contributed more to the passage. I, I think Chettle may have had a role in Green's letter to his wife, which was a very sensational part of the pamphlet. It contains other writings as well. But I think that Green knew William Shakespeare as the author of the apocryphal plays, and that when he's complaining about this man who uh, is an upstart crow, beautified with our feathers, that that had a very specific meaning from Aesop's fables of a bird who was ugly himself and didn't have any beautiful plumage, just ugly black feathers, but took on the beautiful peacock's feathers and swan feathers, decorated himself in all the other birds' feathers to make himself look a lot better than he was and wanted to be king of the birds when, in fact, he was just a crow. So I think it's an accusation of plagiarism, which at the time, Green had to have known about all the plagiarism and taming of Ashrew in the troublesome reign of King John, in Locrine, in the two bad quartos of Henry VI, parts two and three, so there was this plagiaristic playwright at the time. I, I think Green's passage could make sense applied to William Shakespeare, but it has to be said that its interpretation remains very controversial in the authorship community. Another of Green's writings that has allusions to contemporary playwrights is a story called Menaphon, which you also cover in your book. This is a romance, isn't it? Yeah, it's a pastoral romance. 
It was printed in 1589. It was written by Robert Greene, and it was prefaced by his friend Thomas Nash, who was a, a playwright and an occasional poet and a, and a pamphleteer. So what's really interesting about Menaphon is that, according to traditional Shakespeare scholars, the first widely accepted allusion to William Shakespeare was in Greene's Growthsworth of Wit from 1592. But Menaphon is a strong contender in 1589 for the, the first time William Shakespeare starts becoming the subject of interest among his peers in London and the first time they start snapping at him, feeling jealous of him, attacking him. So in the preface to Menaphon, Thomas Nash contributed it. It was the first time he himself appeared in print. And he wrote uh, a letter to the gentlemen students at both the universities. So England had two universities at the time. It was at Cambridge and Oxford. And he's complaining about how eloquent the age has become. And he's saying that every mechanical mate abhors the English he was born to and plucks uh, his utvalis from the inkhorn. So he's a poet who don't know any Latin, but they're, or they were barely taught Latin in grammar school, but they're pretending that they're great Latinists. And then he says they're devoting themselves to the servile, here's the quote, the servile imitation of vainglorious tragedians. So they're copying, they're imitating tragic playwrights, and you could say as the author of The Taming of the Shrew was imitating Christopher Marlowe at that time. And then he very specifically points to the author of The Taming of the Shrew by saying that these black Latin poets think themselves to be more than initiated in poets' immortality if they but once get Boreas by the beard. And he goes on and talks about other things. But this Boreas by the beard is apparently an allusion to the... There's a wooing scene in The Taming of Ashru in which Ferrando, which is like Petruchio, but he's has a different name in Ashru, is telling Kate he wants her to fall in love with him, how beautiful she is. And he says that she's lovelier than the icy hair that grows on Boreas's chin. And Boreas at that time was the god of the north wind. So telling a woman that you want to woo and you want her to become your wife, that you are lovelier than the, the icy hairs on the god of the north wind's chin, it's just a hilarious comparison. It's ridiculous. Well, we have recorded part of Ferrando's wooing speech from The Taming of a Shrew, so we can hear what Nash seems to be satirizing. Sweet Kate, thou art lovelier than Diana's purple robe, whiter than are the snowy Apennines, or icy hair that grows on Boreas's chin. Father, I swear by Ibis's golden beak, more fair and radiant is my bonny Kate than silver Xanthus when he doth embrace the ruddy Simois at Ida's feet. Now, in addition to poking fun at the author of the apocryphal shrew play, doesn't Menaphon also have a character that might be a lampoon of William Shakespeare? That's right. Menaphon contains this character, this sort of country clown named Doron, and he's a, he's a shepherd. And uh, the interesting thing about him is that he's pretty pointedly identified as the author of the same poetic work with this allusion to Boreas's white chin hairs that Nash had already lampooned in the preface. So uh, Doron talks about having a ewe among the rams in his flock, whose fleece was as white as the hairs that grow on Father Boreas's chin. So you have this strong sense that when Thomas Nash and Robert Greene were working on Menaphon together, Nash on the preface, Greene on on the romance itself, they had this image of Boreas's chin hairs that held some strong polemical significance for them, and that in both the character of Doron, uh, mocking him as apparently the author of The Taming of a Shrew, and in the preface with Nash mocking whoever wrote The Taming of a Shrew, they're pointing to this incompetent actor-playwright, this lack Latin poet, this man that's trying to imitate Christopher Marlowe or his betters, and there's this strong sense that they have somebody in mind, and he's really irritating them. 
Yes, it does sound like they're taking shots at a real person who they both know. Let's listen to a poem from Menaphon by this character called Doron, who might be a lampoon of Shakespeare. He's written the poem for a country girl named Carmilla. Carmela, dear, even as the golden ball that Venus got, such are thy goodly eyes. When cherry's juice is tumbled therewithal, thy breath is like the steam of apple pies. Thy lips resemble two cucumbers fair, thy teeth like to the tusks of fattest swine. Thy speech is like the thunder in the air. Would God thy toes, thy lips, and all were mine. Well, that is certainly a very silly poem. Okay, before we leave Robert Greene, we should say something about another of his works that's relevant to the authorship of the Apocrypha. And this is a cautionary tale published in 1591, just before his death, called Farewell to Folly. It's not the story itself that's interesting now, but the introductory letter, which is written to the students of Oxford and Cambridge universities, and in this letter he criticizes the author of the play Fair M, one of the apocryphal plays. Sabrina, what is his complaint about this playwright? So, in the introduction to Farewell to Folly, Green is complaining about this one playwright, and it's very clear who he's complaining about because he quotes a couple passages from this guy's play, Fair M. And the interesting thing about that is Fair M is one of the plays that appeared in the volume titled Shakespeare, Volume 1, from the Library of King Charles II. So if you accept that Fair M really was by William Shakespeare, as that volume says, then Green is complaining here about William Shakespeare as the author of Fair M. And his particular complaint is that this author copies what he writes from ballads, and uh, Ferrum itself is based on a ballad, or that he borrows his, his writings from theological poets who aren't willing to publish under their own names. So a theological poet, it's not entirely clear what he means by that. Somebody who relates, writes on religious matters, somebody who's very important in, in the community and would be embarrassed to write under their own names. So these theological poets get some other Batillus to set his name to their verses. So he's accusing the author of Ferrum of essentially serving as a frontman, of being a Batillus, who was an ancient Roman writer who put his name to, I believe it was Virgil's verses. And then he goes on and says, thus is the ass made proud by this underhand brokery. So he's accusing Ferrum's author of first being a Batillus, of being a frontman, and then also being a playbroker. So he's somebody who brokers plays, perhaps as an actor for his play company. And then he goes on, he that cannot write true English without the help of parish clerks needs to make himself the father of interludes, a playwright. So it's really... Uh, interesting, especially in the context of Green's other complaints in Menaphon against Doron, who seems to have been the author of The Taming of a Shrew, and also in Green's Grotesworth, according to my interpretation, he was very upset at this plagiarist who was pretending to be a great playwright but was really just stealing a lot of verses from Marlowe and Green himself. My understanding, Sabrina, is that the play brokers for the theater companies who commissioned plays from the university-educated writers such as Nash and Marston often made a great deal more money from these plays than the writers did, and this was a cause of resentment. Yeah, that, that could have been. And the, the players in general were much wealthier than the playwrights who wrote for them. So there, there's a lot of widespread resentment by the poets of the time against the actors who were sweeping about town in their satin suits and head pages and were able to buy lands in the country 
uh, some of that resentment that you hear in the topical and satirical works of the time seems particularly pointed at William Shakespeare himself. I think that's even a traditional Stratfordian interpretation. And the fact that many actors of that time were resented by playwrights because they made a lot more money is probably not well known, because I think there's a common belief that stage actors in those days lived in poverty, much as they do now. Well, let's turn now to some of the plays of the time that have characters that appear to be lampoons of William Shakespeare. Why don't we start with this Elizabethan play by John Marston that you discuss in your book. It's called Histriomastics, which can be translated as The Player Whipped. And my wild guess here is that the actors are not portrayed sympathetically in this piece. The character of special interest in this play goes by the name Master Posthaste the Poet, and he's an actor who serves as the lead playwright for a theater troupe called Sir Oliver Owlet's Men. What do you find fascinating about this character? He seems to be a lampoon of William Shakespeare as a boastful actor and pretty incompetent playwright for his troupe, the Sir Oliver Owlet's Men. Um, and he has a, a dra- dramatic rival in the play. He was very clearly the dr- rival in the play is named Chrysogonus. He's a scholar and a poet, and he clearly represents Ben Johnson. And this Johnson character, Chrysogonus, uh, refuses to lower his art to the base taste of the multitudes, which post-taste has no trouble with. He's all about the popular appeal. <laughs> Even many traditional Shakespeare scholars agree that post-taste seems to be a, a lampoon of William Shakespeare. In the play within the play, post-taste writes two different plays. One is a version of the London Prodigal, and then another one, is, they're kind of mixed up together, is a Troilus and Cressida play. So the London Prodigal is an apocryphal Shakespeare play. Troilus and Cressida is a canonical play, but as, as the, they play it in the play within a play, it's really bad stuff. And there's an Italian lord who watches it, and he, just, he can't believe how crummy it is. He says it's lame stuff, base trash. Another connection between him and William Shakespeare is that at the end of the play, he and the players have been dodging their taxes, and they, the officials are so angry, they ship them out of England to who knows where as punishment for not having more public spirit. Well, we have an excerpt of that scene in History of Mastics that has the spoof of Troilus and Cressida. And what we'll hear in this excerpt is part of the speech in which Troilus tries to woo Cressida. Come, Cressida, my Cresset light. Thy face doth shine both day and night. Behold, behold, thy garter blue, thy knight his valiant elbow wears that when he shakes his furious spear. Yes, that is pretty lame stuff. Uh, maybe, as you say in your book, this is lampooning a lost, bad quarto version of the bard's Troilus and Cressida. Yeah. Well, we have one more excerpt from Marston's play, and this is the visiting Italian lord who's been watching the play and makes these scathing criticisms of it which is reminiscent of the play within a play that occurs in A Midsummer Night's Dream, in which the high-born audience heckles the rude mechanicals while they perform Pyramus and Thisbe. Most ugly lines and base brown paper stuff, thus to abuse our heavenly poesy, that sacred offspring from the brain of Jove, thus to be mangled with profane absurds, strangled and choked with lawless bastard words. That's about as savage a criticism of a play as you'll find anywhere. Before we leave Histriomastic, Sabrina, you pointed out an even more specific allusion to William Shakespeare in the play, didn't you? Yeah, I think I wanted to mention the specific allusion to uh, William Shakespeare's name. So in Troilus and Cressida, 
um, when Toriel says wooing Cressida, that he says, come Cressida, my Cresset light, then he, thy knight, his valiant elbow wears, that when he shakes his furious spear. So he's a somebody who shakes his spear. There's a, the direct link with William Shakespeare's name, and then this ridiculous, incompetent playwright who goes around drinking with his fellows, and he has no interest whatsoever in classical poetry or trying to be one of the great poets of all time. He really is a much better match for the author of the apocryphal plays than the great bard. Yes, that certainly seems to be the case. Okay, let's turn now to a play by Shakespeare's rival, Ben Jonson, called Every Man Out of His Humor. This was written during the three-year period known as the Poets' War that started in 1599 when the Archbishop of Canterbury and the Bishop of London banned the publication of satires and epigrams, which left plays as the only outlet for the satirical wit of Elizabethan writers. Now, the apparent links to Shakespeare in this play are widely accepted, aren't they? Yeah, these links have been known for a a long time, uh, both to traditional scholars and to Oxfordians, so um, not original to me. But the really interesting character in Every Man Out of His Humor for the authorship debate is Insulso Sagliardo, who's a very wealthy citizen who wants to become a gentleman and purchase a coat of arms. And that is something that William Shakespeare, in fact, in 1597, apparently he, he and his father applied for a coat of arms that his father had been seeking ever since the 1570s. And William became the first player in England to acquire the title of gentleman and get a family coat of arms. And that his right to it was eventually called into question. He, he managed to keep it, but it, it was quite controversial for a player to become a gentleman and have this title. So in the play, Sagliardo, and his first name, Insulto, is a Spanish word that means insipid or vapid, and then his last name means flatter or gall, fool. Uh, and he's described as being so enamored of the main name of a gentleman that he will have it even if he has to buy it. So he's really, really determined to advance himself socially. And he's also described as having a mind that's pure and simple without any uh, beggarly qualities such as learning and knowledge. So he, he's a fool who's intent on advancing his social position. He doesn't sound a lot like the vision of the bard we would have in our minds from reading Shakespeare's plays, but this insulto Sagliardo, he's so determined to become a gentleman, he buys it at the College of Arms. And when he gets his coat of arms, the interesting thing about it is it's a headless boar, so ramping about without brain or wit. And then along with the crest, he gets a, what would you call it, the phrase that goes along with your coat of arms. A motto? A motto, exactly. And his motto is not without mustard, which is very interesting because the motto on William Shakespeare's coat of arms was not without right. And not without right, not without mustard. There's a clear uh, clear parallel. So Ben Johnson in his play is making fun of somebody, and uh, somebody who recently bought the title of gentleman and has a coat of arms not without mustard or right would seem to be William Shakespeare. And even the color of the coat is this bright mustard color, which um, William Shakespeare's own coat was a bright gold yellow mustardy color. Saliardo's complaints about his problems trying to get a coat of arms are pretty amusing, so we have recorded a little bit of that scene from Every Man Out of His Humor, and I'll just explain that the word herits that you'll hear in the speech refers to the heralds or officers of arms in the College of Arms. By this parchment, gentlemen, I have been so toiled among the herits yonder, you will not believe. They do speak in the strangest language, and give a man the hardest terms for his money that ever you knew. But have you arms? Have you arms? If faith, I thank them. I can write myself gentlemen now. Here's my 
patent. It cost me 30 pound by this breath. Another fascinating part of this play is at the very beginning when a character named Asper addresses the audience directly. Sabrina, tell us about Asper and what he says in the introduction to the play, and then we'll listen to it. He's Johnson's mouthpiece. So he's um, speaking for Johnson and talking about how he's planning to hold a mirror up to the times. Well, I will scourge those apes, and to these courteous eyes oppose a mirror as large as is the stage whereon we act, where they shall see the time's deformity anatomized in every nerve and sinew with constant courage and contempt of fear. Clearly, Johnson is announcing right at the start that he will pull no punches in this play. We have one more scene from Every Man Out of His Humor to listen to, and in this scene... After Soliardo purchases his coat of arms, he's made the butt of a practical joke by his friends. Can you tell us what happens in this marvelous scene? Yeah, he's with his companions. So it's Carlo Buffoni, Pantarvolo, Massalenti, and then a courtier named Fastidious Brisk. And they're uh, at court, and there's a woman there, Saviolina, who's very fluffy-headed. And they're trying to convince her that Sogliardo is really a courtier, a very refined man, but he's going to pretend to be a country bumpkin when he meets her. And she's absolutely fooled. His travels have changed his complexion, madam. Oh, Sir Pontavolo, you must think every man was not born to have my servant Brisk's feature. But that which transcends all, lady, he doth so peerlessly imitate any manner of person for gesture, action, passion, or whatever. Aye, especially a rustic or a cloud, madam, that it is not possible for the sharpest sighted wit in the world to discern any sparks of the gentleman in him when he does it. Oh, Monsieur Brisk, be not so tyrannous to confine all wits within the compass of your own. Not find the sparks of a gentleman in him, if he be a gentleman. All right, now let's take a look at another play from this period that appears to include a burlesque of William Shakespeare. I'm going to give our listeners the full name from the title page since it is an entertainment in itself. The full title is The Tragical History, Admirable Achievements, and Various Events of Guy, Earl of Warwick. And the unknown author is represented by the initials B.J. on the title page. This one is really obscure, isn't it? Yeah. What did you find out about this work in your research, Sabrina? The known edition of Guy Earl of Warwick was printed in 1661, so it was ignored for a long time. It was didn't seem particularly relevant to Shakespeare's time, his contemporaries. And only within, I would say, the last 10 years have traditional Shakespeare scholars really started paying attention to the, this possible lampoon. So it's a, sort of an emerging area in Shakespeare studies. The composition and style of this play indicate that it was written between around 1589 and 1594, so right around the time that William Shakespeare was emerging as an actor and perhaps a playwright in London. So the character in Guy Earl Warwick that seems to be a lampoon of him is this squire, Philip Sparrow, who is explicitly named as being from Stratford-upon-Avon. So Philip Sparrow of Stratford accompanies Guy, this magnificent hero, to go on pilgrimage to the Holy Land. And he's provincial clown, he's a food thief. He, it starts off, he's gotten this woman pregnant, her name's 
Parnell, and she's his mistress, and his father's begging him to marry her, and she wants him to marry her too, but he runs off to follow Guy in his chivalrous adventures. And his Latin isn't very good, but he's pretty proud of his poetry, and he has some extempore poetry that he recites as he leaves Stratford and leaves the mother of his child behind. His name, Philip Sparrow, at that time, as I understand, would have been pronounced Spiro, so it sounds a little bit Spiro Shakespeare has a bit of an echo of that. And a sparrow was... Uh, it was a small drab bird without a beautiful song. So poets who wanted to honor their fellows might call them swallows, swans, eagles, not a sparrow. It was a lecherous, commonplace bird. And the most interesting connection, I think, is that Philip Sparrow in the play, who's this clown, recites four lines that are pretty much direct echoes of lines spoken by the clown mouse in Musidorus. So one way to interpret that would be that he that whoever wrote Guy Earl of Warwick was making fun of Philip Sparrow as the author of Musidorus and the man who created this character Mouse and thought that he was sort of like Mouse, an equivalent kind of clown. Ah, so the character of Philip Sparrow seems to be a lampoon of William Shakespeare of Stratford as well as a clown like the character of Mouse in Musidorus. Mm-hmm. Well, let's listen to some pieces from this play. Our actors have recorded a couple of excerpts for us. And the first one is from a scene that happens after Philip Sparrow and Guy have returned from the Holy Land, and Philip has become separated from Guy, who has become a hermit in Warwickshire, while his squire, Sparrow, wanders in a forest looking for food. In this excerpt, Philip runs into Guy's son, Rainborn, who has been searching the world for his father. Art thou a Christian? Prithee, where wert born? Faith, sir, I was born in England, at Stratford-upon-Avon in Warwickshire. Wert born in England? What's thy name? Hey, I have a fine finical name, I can tell ye, for my name is Sparrow. Yet I am no house sparrow, no no edge sparrow, no no peaking sparrow, no no sneaking sparrow, but I am a high-mounting, lofty-minded sparrow, and that Parnell knows well enough. And a good many more, the pretty wenches of our parish, faith. Now we're going to listen to an excerpt that is one of these satirical jabs at the mouse scenes in Musidorus that you mentioned had been overlooked until very recently. But just before we listen to that, we'll hear part of the scene in Musidorus that is being satirized. In this scene, Mouse is searching a forest looking for Musidorus and the missing Princess Amadine. Listeners will remember that Mouse is hard of hearing, which leads to a lot of comic misunderstandings, such as this exchange in which Mouse thinks Musidorus claims to be an emmet, which is the old English word for an ant, the insect ant, that is. Is through the woods and through the woods to look out a shepherd and a stray king's daughter. But soft, who have we here? What art thou? I am an hermit. An emmet? I never saw such big Emmet in all my life before. And now, let's hear the parallel scene in Guy, Earl of Warwick, which is clearly one of the satirical swipes at Musidorus. Ye cowardly rogue, wilt thou kill a hermit? An Emmet quotha, tis one of the foulest great Emmets that ever I saw. And now finally, going back to the apocryphal play, this is Musidorus insisting that he is a hermit not an emmet. I tell you, sir, I am an hermit, one that leads a solitary life within these woods. Oh, I know thee now. Thou art her that eats up all the hips and whores. 
we could not have one piece of fat bacon for thee all this year. We've heard just a couple of the pointed, joking references to Musidorus, the most popular of the apocryphal plays in the 17th century that are found in Guy, Earl of Warwick, references that were overlooked until John Peachman wrote an article detailing them in 2006. Sabrina, I'd like to spend some time now talking about some of the allusions to Shakespeare that are not found in plays, but in other writings. And at the top of the list is an epigram, or satirical poem, by Ben Jonson called On Poet Ape, which you discuss in detail in your book. Who is the poet ape under fire in this poem? Many of the Shakespeare biographies tell us that Shakespeare and Jonson were drinking buddies, Surely this can't be an attack on Shakespeare. Oh, that's a great question. Yeah, so on Poet Ape, the term Poet Ape was first coined by Sir Philip Sidney back in the early 1580s, and it was a derogatory way to allude to actors, to players. So a Poet Ape is a player, and Johnson used the word in the same sense in his 1601 play, Poetaster. So in on Poet Ape, he's making fun of a specific actor who wants to be seen as the chief playwright in the land. So it begins, poor poet ape that would be thought our chief. And he describes this poet ape's works, his, his writings, as the frippery of wit. So that would mean sort of the cast-off clothes of a superior writer, a wittier writer. Well, we're going to hear the entirety of On Poet Ape in just a moment. But before that, let's listen to a short excerpt from the Johnson play you just mentioned, Poetaster, where Johnson compares player poet apes to the basilisk, a mythical monster. Oh, good. Let's hear it. Are there no players here? No poet apes that come with basilisks' eyes, whose forked tongues are steeped in venom as their hearts in gall? That was the voice of Ben Johnson there, or rather a living poet ape impersonating Ben Johnson, and now he's going to read On Poet Ape for us. But before we hear it, I'm going to let you tell us a little bit more about this epigram, Sabrina, because it seems to be highly significant to the authorship issue. Yeah, so in Poet Ape, you'll hear the man reading is Ben Johnson claiming that Poet Ape was a dishonest playbroker, that from brokerage he had become a bold thief. So this was an actor who had begun his playwriting career by purchasing the rights, buying the reversion to older plays. And at first he made small borrowings, he picked and gleaned, and now he's become wealthy and well-known, and he's begun making each man's wit his own. He's pretending to have written works that he didn't. And he doesn't care whose name was associated with whole passages he didn't write, so he marks not whose twas first. So there aren't very many candidates who could be poetic. We're looking at somebody here who was an actor, a playbroker. So most playwrights of the time were not playbrokers. It wasn't common at all to be a playbroker. You were somebody embedded with a play company. You were one of the actors or theater shareholders who was able to purchase plays for your troupe. So this actor and playbroker also wanted to be seen as the chief playwright in England. That really narrows it down, in my opinion, to William Shakespeare. All right, well, let's listen then to On Poet Ape by Ben Jonson. Poor poet ape that would be thought our chief, whose works are in the frippery of wit, from brokage is become so bold a thief as we, the robbed, leave rage and pity it. At first he made low shifts, would pick and glean, by the reversion of old plays, now grown to a little wealth and credit in the scene, he takes up all, makes each man's wit his own, and told of this, he slights it, 
tut such crimes the sluggish, gaping auditor devours. He marks not whose t'was first, and after times may judge it to be his as well as ours. Fool! As if half-eyes will not know a fleece from locks of wool, or shreds from the whole piece. That is a pretty savage attack on some playwright known to Johnson, as well as that playwright's audience. Now, you point out in the book that this isn't the only allusion that Johnson made to this unnamed playwright. Yeah, going back to your question about sort of what does this mean if Johnson and Shakespeare were these great drinking buddies, how could that refer to William Shakespeare? This is not the only derogatory allusion to William Shakespeare in Johnson's works from the time. We've, al- we've also talked about every man out of his humor, where Sogliardo, this man who wants to become a gentleman and buy the coat of arms that sounds like William Shakespeare's. There's a good case that's a lampoon of William Shakespeare. There are other plays, too. In Poetaster, the character of Captain Tucker is, looks like he may be a caricature of William Shakespeare. You can't find Johnson saying anything good about William Shakespeare until after he died. Even in some very ambiguous statements in the first folio and in a passage in his uh, private notebook that he wrote for posterity. His words on Shakespeare are always ambiguous, and he himself was a very subtle, cunning writer who was far from being the honest Ben that Stratford biographers would have him be. This is a good opportunity to ask you a basic question that might be in the minds of listeners who are just learning about these allusions from this time period. Why is the real name of the person being satirized never used? In a play, it's not surprising that the author uses a made-up name for a character, but these fictional names are also used in all the other forms of writing as well. It was very common in the literature of the time. This was a golden age of pseudonyms, pseudonymous writing, of anonymous writing. They loved playing with words, and even when they praised people. So in praise, they would sometimes name the poets they were praising. Often, they would refer to them by one of their characters. But when they were criticizing somebody or attacking them, they almost always used assumed names, used satires, and and veiled their attacks. I think it's partly because this was a time there was no free press. They had to be very, very careful not to ever criticize anyone openly who was well-placed in the court. They also didn't really want to embarrass each other. I think it was the social code at the time. People's names were very important to them, their reputations. And you can see this in one of Johnson's other epigrams. It's called To Person Guilty, where there's someone who had really committed some offense that he felt this person should be called out for it in his epigram, but not by name. And he he wrote a couple epigrams to Guilty. In the second one, he says, Guilty, you better stop doing this thing you've been doing, because if you keep on acting out and lose your shame, I'll lose my modesty and tell your name. But that was the last step, telling somebody's name was and calling them out on some offense something they'd done that would publicly embarrass their names. It was, it was just not done. So it was part of the professional code of conduct for writers at the time then. Yeah. And wasn't there also good reason to fear imprisonment if you lampoon the wrong person? Absolutely. They were constantly being thrown in jail for writing something that offended the Crown. And they used language in this very ingenious fashion because of the censorship laws that they had. They constantly satirized each other, and they very, very rarely called anyone out by name. Let's take a look at one more non-dramatic work with allusions to Shakespeare that you discuss in your book. I want to be sure we talk about this one because it's been almost completely overlooked in the authorship debate. This is an obscure collection of satirical poems called Skyalethia by the English writer Everard Gilpin. Sabrina, what can you tell us about Gilpin and Skyalethia? 
Gilpin was a cousin of John Marsden, who was another satirist and who wrote History of Mastics. That's the play that had Master Posthaste, the poet. So um, Gilpin's attitudes, we can assume, were probably roughly similar to Marsden's. If Marsden was mocking William Shakespeare, we might expect the same kind of attitude from Gilpin. So in one of his satires in Sciolithia, He's ridiculing a man, and I, to my knowledge, this is the first time it's really come up in the authorship debate, but there's a man he called Titus, and since this was written in 1598, a popular play of the time was Titus Andronicus, so this is a probable reference to Titus Andronicus. And Gilpin's accusation against Titus is that he's going about flaunting his status as a gentleman and boasting of his recently acquired coat of arms, which had happened to William Shakespeare in 1596 so just a couple years before, and it's also something that Ben Johnson had apparently mocked in every man out of his humor. So Titus is going around flaunting his gentry and his coat of arms, and that's not the only thing Gilpin says about him. In another satire, he attacks Titus for pretending to be religious and patriotic, but actually not caring about religion or his commonweal. He, he makes a big show of how concerned he is as a citizen, but it's fake. And the the line he uses to mock Titus is um, an echo of a line from, from Titus Andronicus. We've recorded the relevant parts of two of the poems in Skylithia, and we can listen to them now. The first one has the attack on Titus for requiring a coat of arms, and the second excerpt compares his outward show to his real nature. Titus oft vaunts his gentry everywhere, blazoning his coat, deriving his pedigree. What needest thou daily, Titus, jade mine ear? I will believe thy house's ancestry. If that be ancient, which we do forget, thy gentry is so, none can remember it. The very poet, whose standish doth flow with nectar of Parnassus, and his brain melts to Castalian dew, and showers wit's rain, yet by his outward countenance doth appear to have born in wit's dearth's dearest year. So this idea that William Shakespeare, or Titus, if, if he represented William Shakespeare, wasn't that civic-minded, is really echoed by William Shakespeare's actions. So he was known at this time to be dodging his taxes, hoarding grain, suing people for tiny amounts of money. His actions don't show him to have been a man with a great Renaissance spirit, or, or a, a man of great humanity. In that second poem, what is the reference to the Castalian dew? Yeah, according to classical mythology, it was the fountain of poetic inspiration. And Shakespeare, the bard, linked himself explicitly to the Castalian spring, so that the poet of the Castalian spring could be Shakespeare. At the introduction to Venus and Adonis, he has a Latin phrase that says, uh, "Let others." It, it translates, "Let others please the folk, or I will drink from golden-haired Apollo's Castalian spring." So when Gilpin's talking about this poet whose inkstand is flowing with nectar from Parnassus, home of the muses, and his brain is melting to Castalian dew, but his outward appearance is that of a man born in, he says, wit's dearest year. That means a man born when year when wits weren't being handed out, when brains were scarce. So this great poet has the outward appearance of a fool. So we could interpret Gilpin's satires to mean that he was upset that the Bard's works were being credited to a man born in a year when brains were scarce. And although the world assumed that William of Stratford was the great poet Shakespeare, the truth did not match the outward show. Yeah. All right, I'd like to take quite a detour from these satirical writings by Shakespeare's contemporaries now and dive into the canon for a moment so that we can talk about one of the most fascinating chapters in your book. This chapter 
is about the Bard's popular comedy, possibly his most popular comedy, As You Like It. And in particular, it's about the strange scene near the end of the play involving Touchstone and a rustic clown character named William. Sabrina, what do you find so compelling about this scene from an authorship standpoint? Well, there are only two speaking characters in the canonical plays named William. And one is this country clown from the Forest of Arden and As You Like It. And the other one is a sort of hapless Latin student in The Merry Wives of Windsor. So I think no playwright who was supposedly named William could have created a character named William without understanding that it is a potential self-reference, especially not a poet as careful with language as Shakespeare was. So I think it's not a stretch to interpret William the Clown in Forest of Arden as somehow representing the author, the author's alter ego, William Shakespeare of Stratford, and supporting that, there's a very interesting theory. It's not my own original theory. It's actually developed by the Oxfordian Alex McNeil, that in the scene between Touchstone and William in the Forest of Arden, that Touchstone represents the bard, that William represents William Shakespeare of Stratford, and they're arguing over this woman, Audrey, and according to McNeil, and it really is borne out by a close look at the language, Audrey represents the, the playtext, the bard's canonical plays. And so um, it's quite interesting to hear the scene with that in mind. Well, why don't we do that right now? Our actors have recorded most of this strange scene for us, starting at William's entrance. So let's hear what Touchstone, Audrey, and William the Clown say to each other in As You Like It. Good evening, Audrey. <laughs> God, good even, William. <laughs> and good even to you, sir. Good even, gentle friend. Cover thy head. Cover thy head. Thy prithee be covered. How old are you, friend? Five and twenty, sir. A ripe age. Is thy name William? William, sir. A fair name. Was born in the forest, dear? Aye, sir. I thank God. <laughs> thank God. A good answer. Art rich? Faith, sir. So-so. So-so is good. Very good. Very excellent good. And yet it is not. It is but so-so. Art wise? Aye, sir, I have a pretty wit. Why, thou sayest well. I do not remember a saying. The fool doth think he is wise, but the wise man knows himself to be a fool. The heathen philosopher, when he had a desire to eat a grape, would open his lips when he put it into his mouth, meaning thereby that grapes were made to eat and lips to open. You do love this maid? I do, sir. Give me your hand. Art thou learned? No, sir. Then learn this of me. To have is to have, for it is a figure in rhetoric that drink being poured out of a cup into a glass, by filling the one, doth empty the other. For all your writers do consent that Ipse is he. Now, you are not Ipse, for I am he. Which he, sir? He, sir, that must marry this woman. Therefore, you clown, abandon, which is in the vulgar leave, the society, which in the boorish is company, of this female, which in the common is woman, which together is, abandon the society of this female, or clown, thou perishest, or to thy bitter understanding diest, or to wit I kill thee, make thee away, translate thy life into death, thy liberty into bondage, I will deal in poison with thee, or in bastinado, or in steel, I will bend thee with thee in faction, I will o'run thee with policy, I will kill thee a hundred and fifty ways, therefore tremble and depart. Do, good William. Uh, God rest you merry, sir. That part of this scene is often cut from productions of the play, and it's not hard to see why. 
Touchstone is very hostile to William without good reason, and his language is downright peculiar. What is your take on the meaning of this scene, Sabrina? Yeah, so a particularly interesting part is when Touchstone starts lecturing William about the preservation of water. So it's being poured from one glass into another. And he says, to have is to have, for it is a figure in rhetoric that drink, being poured out of a cup into a glass, by filling the one doth empty the other. For your, all your writers do consent that Ipsy is he. Now you are not Ipsy, for I am he. And it sounds like sort of this veiled message that to have, I'm giving my text to you, but the words are still mine. And I am the author, you are not. You could sort of hear this double play. of He's giving William something, but he doesn't really think it belongs to William, and he doesn't want William to, to modify it or to change it. And there, there are many, many nuances in that scene. When Touchstone first meets William, he just mocks him. He attacks him relentlessly. William's done nothing. He just shows up in the forest, and all of a sudden, Touchstone is threatening him to a duel, saying that he's the only one that can marry Audrey, and William needs to go away and abandon her. There are allusions to Christopher Marlowe's death. It's a fascinating scene. I'd encourage everyone to read Alex McNeil's original article on it. Oh, right. The reference to Marlowe's murder in a tavern after a quarrel over the dinner bill or the reckoning for the meal. The scene is not only puzzling, but it doesn't forward the action at all, so it's unnecessary in a dramatic sense. Oh, it is. It's completely extraneous. Yeah, and it's often, I think, omitted because it's not necessary to the main action. But Touchstone's threatening William, saying, you know, I'll deal in poison with you. I'll kill you 150 ways. The sense of something shimmering under the surface, that there's some hidden meaning there. Yes, there seems to be something quite significant bubbling underneath that scene. Well, we are drawing quite close to the end of this interview, Sabrina, but I don't want to forget to mention a striking observation that you make in your book, and that is that there are no apocryphal Marlowe plays or apocryphal Nash plays or, in fact, any apocryphal plays linked to any Elizabethan or Jacobean playwrights other than Shakespeare. That's right. Shakespeare, the bard, is unique for his phenomenal use of language, for all his gifts, for this these surprising things, that he's the only writer from the time about whom there's a serious authorship question that's been entertained for a century and a half. There's so many puzzling things about his work, his mysterious knowledge of Italian literature, of, of Italy, of the law, and then the same writer who has had an authorship debate swirling about him for 150 years is also the only writer from the time to have two separate bodies of work that were differently authored attributed to him. So I think it's a very mysterious thing that really bears further investigation. And you have proposed a solution to this mystery, which is that the main author of the apocryphal works is none other than the fellow whose name appears on the title pages of some of them, William Shakespeare of Stratford, the theater investor who might also have been a play broker and actor for his company. And if that's the case then the chief author of the canonical plays, who we've been referring to as the Bard, must be somebody else. On this point, the Oxfordians are certainly with you. But you propose that the mysterious Bard is not the 17th Earl of Oxford, Edward de Vere. Who do you think it was? In this book, I, I have to confess I propose a new authorship candidate, which the world has certainly not been, been clamoring for, so there it is. Um, I think it might have been, the true bard may have been Thomas Sackville, who was a second cousin of Queen Elizabeth. And before I introduce the case for Sackville, let me just say that I uh, was an Oxfordian when I first learned about the authorship question. From uh, 1999 until about 2007, I found the case for Oxford to be much stronger than the case for William Shakespeare himself. 
uh, and that was before I understood the problem posed by these apocryphal plays. I actually had planned to write a book about Oxford. What led to the apocryphal William Shakespeare was I decided to pretty much read everything I could find that had been written during the Elizabethan and early Jacobian period. So I just wanted to familiarize myself with the literature of the time and get a sense for what the conventions were, what kinds of topical satires were, were around, things that might not have been discussed before in the, top, in the context of the authorship debate. And while I was doing that, I came across a number of allusions to Thomas Sackville, who was older. He was born in 1536. He was the greatest poet of the early Elizabethan period and a known influence on Shakespeare. He died in 1608. And rather than make the case for him here, I'll perhaps postpone that to a later podcast or my second book. So the book for William Shakespeare is the first in a two-part series. The second part will be Thomas Sackville and the Shakespearean Glass Slipper. Excellent. So we can look forward to a follow-up volume to the apocryphal William Shakespeare that will present the case for Sir Thomas Sackville as the bard. Sabrina, thank you so much for being our guest on the Shakespeare Underground and talking to us about the neglected Shakespeare apocrypha and their important implications to the authorship controversy. You're very welcome, Alan. Just thank you so much for interviewing me. It was a real pleasure getting to talk to you and talk about my book, and I thank you so much for the opportunity. This concludes Episode 6 of The Shakespeare Underground. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast. Links to the literature mentioned in this episode can be found on our website at theshakespeareunderground.com, and you'll find links to several authorship-related sites on our resources page. We'd love to hear from you, so please don't hesitate to post your comments on the website. We would like to thank our cast of Shakespearean actors who are active in professional theater in the Seattle area. They are Leslie Law, Chris Enzweiler, Mark Anders, David Anthony Lewis, Hannah Moots, and Mark Waldstein. Our theme music is A Midsummer Night's Dream by Dokashiteru from ccmixter.org under a Creative Commons license.